and welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name is Jacqueline Smith and I'm one of the directors of the Society. One of the industry trends often commented on at the moment is that arbitrations and mega disputes are on the rise. It will be unsurprising to our listeners to also hear that there is a simultaneous increase in the quantity of documents generated by construction projects of this magnitude. Following the first Australian decision on technology-assisted review in the Supreme Court of Victoria last December, this topic has been widely discussed in the industry. In light of this, is technology-assisted review the answer to managing costs and logistics of large volumes of documents in these disputes? I'm joined today by Craig McCauley and Andrew Stevenson. Craig is an Executive Director at Cordamantha Forensic and Andrew is a Construction and Arbitration Partner at Cause Chambers Westgarth. Welcome to both Craig and Andrew. Craig, perhaps we'll start with you and ask you to introduce our listeners to what technology assisted review is and the differences between professional guided and statistical guided TAR execution strategies. Thanks, Jacqueline. Um, Well, technology assisted review to start off with is actually a combination of a number of things, principally designed to lessen the burden of reviewing documents. And at the moment, it includes a number of things, including uh, concept clustering, email threading, uh, near duplicate detection, but also predictive coding, which is traditionally what we're seeing the law fraternity to refer to it at the moment. So important to note that it's not just one thing, it's a number, but for the moment we'll, we'll talk about predictive coding, which is really about using a small sample of documents, often very small in comparison to a corpus, and tagging those documents manually as relevant and not relevant, and then using the properties of the documents that are relevant and not relevant, and modelling that so that you can identify those similar relevant and not relevant documents in a whole corpus. But of course, it was interesting with the McConnell Dow case decision back in early December in 2016, um, Justice Vickery opened the door to a number of different ways to actually execute the process of conducting technology-assisted review or predictive coding. And uh, typically there's there's a number of acronyms that are used, but um, most importantly, I think that the key takeaway for people is that there's two strategies that can be adopted. One is, do you want to use statistics to determine where the cutoff point is to relevant documents and the processes you need to follow to do that? Or do you want to use a professional assessment as to the cutoff point of where documents are relevant or not relevant? And each of those processes has its own pros and cons, but it's important that that decision be made fairly early up as part of a process. And Craig, what are some of the key considerations that people need to be mindful of when they're choosing a selection process? Yeah, good question, Jacqueline. I mean, I think Some of the key ones that are are emerging at the moment are, one is the the richness of relevance documents in a corpus. So key to that, if we take some of the statistics from the McConnell Dow case, where we've got a corpus of 1.4 million documents, the initial control set or the first step in using a a statistical uh, guided process for TAR is, um, as I said, the control set, which is only about 1,500 documents. 
Now, if you've got a very low richness of relevant documents in your corpus, there's every chance that you will not be able to identify a relevant document in your control set, immediately putting you on the back foot about how you might execute a statistically guided process. Of course, there's always ways around that, but you know, immediately, you know, as corpuses are going to get larger, you know, those sorts of considerations need to be put in place. Of course, I think the other big issue is the complexity of relevant categories that are in the corpus as well. So we know from the McConnell Dow case, there's about 15 separate categories of relevant documents. Now, when we're taking a small sample, ideally that sample should have representation of relevant and not relevant documents to each of those categories. But of course, it becomes a bit of an issue, uh, you know, if that's not the case, but you know, something to consider when making a decision on what to use. Um, the other thing, so because of a, a statistically guided process re- relies on the, the, um, the integrity of the, the statistics. You know, adding new documents to a corpus will create an issue. So um, of course, if we do that, if we've taken you know, a statistically valid sample of an original corpus, then add new documents. We need to restart that whole process so that we don't break that statistical integrity. Similarly, the same thing happens if issues were to change during the, view, the review, because we're working on a, on a control set, you know, issues changing will invalidate that control set so the process will need to be started again. I think some of the, the things that need to be thought about in that sort of context though would be most of the matters or the court cases that we see at the moment are around predicting around a binary yes or no. Potentially we might need to move down to predicting around a particular issue, whether it's relevant or not relevant to an issue and multi- maintaining a number of streams of prediction. And Andrew, can you walk us through some of the step, the key steps that are involved for legal teams when they're using a predictive coding process? Thank you, Jackie. Um, the critical issue is to demonstrate to the other side in some sort of cogent way that the process has worked satisfactorily. Uh, ultimately, that is a matter that would need also to be demonstrated to the court. The critical issues associated with the use of TAR Uh, in this regard will be the fact that um, the technology works by reference to an algorithm. The algorithm will be the proprietary product of uh, the owner of the software who will be reluctant to disclose the algorithm. Even if it were disclosed, there's very little prospect that either the legal teams involved in the process or the judiciary would understand the algorithm and whether it was an effective method for achieving the objective. Um, So there has to be some way of being able to check whether the algorithm is functioning properly. The second aspect, as Craig has mentioned, is the selection of a number of documents, 1,500 in a particular case, and then coding those documents. Absent TAR, the discovery process has relied upon uh, the judgment of the two sets of lawyers responsible uh, for the case, assuming two parties only. Generally, the system works on the basis of professional judgments being exercised 
uh, behind closed doors so that neither side is fully aware of the relevance criteria being used uh, by uh, the other. That has been an acceptable position from time immemorial in the context of discovery. The question that arises is that the 1500 documents now become supercritical to the output of the uh, TAR technology and in the event that it is not accurate in terms of the assessment uh, there is a risk that documents will not be discovered that perhaps should be. So the question that then arises is does the introduction of this technology mean that the judgment of the respective lawyers uh, needs to be more transparent? For me, if that were to occur, then much of the value associated with TAR will be lost. Um, for example, if it were the case that the two, uh, assuming only two parties, two lawyers were to sit in a room and to agree the issues associated with a bunch of documents, say 1500, the real risk is that they will disagree. If they do disagree, that uh, might ultimately mean that the agreement needs to be resolved by a judge, uh, which is an unattractive proposition both for the judiciary and the profession and more importantly clients. A concern may arise because people choose to be tactical. Tactics may include trading off between precision and recall in the process so that one side uh, takes an overly uh, generous view in relation to what is relevant, that is, uh, finds far more documents relevant to a particular issue than the other. The effect of so doing is it increases recall and therefore reduces the ability of the technology to reduce the documents which will be manually reviewed. That is, uh, by choosing wide relevance criteria, the precision sought to be obtained by TAR is lost. Some system has to be developed which allows uh, confidence in the system. By that I mean both the algorithm and the coding of the um, initial documents, perhaps as few as 1500. Um, by way of suggestion, uh, perhaps a way of doing that is for each party to undertake to randomly select a sample of documents, perhaps 1500 again, which are not uh, ever given to the computer but are otherwise coded and then for the output of the TAR system to be correlated with the um, 1500 documents which are not uh, part of the sample given to the computer and uh, a percentage derived as to uh, the extent to which the algorithm agrees with the coding on the 1500 documents uh, which it has not had the benefit of coding. And when the correlation is at a predetermined level, perhaps 80%, <clears throat> then uh, the system has been regarded as satisfactory for the purposes of discovery. So there are a few issues to be worked out, but there is no doubt that the technology offers great 
potential to reduce one of the most expensive aspects of litigation, provided that court supervision and interference with what each party is doing is kept to a minimum. So one of the key developments that we've seen in Australia lately uh, in this space was a decision of the Supreme Court of Victoria last year, um, McConnell, Dowell and Santon, which Craig and Andrew have both sort of spoken to. In that case, a special referee was appointed to implement a technology-assisted review process. Andrew, can you tell us a little bit more about this decision and what it means for the use of technology-assisted review going forward? Uh, that case, in many respects is unusual uh, because both parties, as I understand it, reading the decision, uh, had the full set of documents that were initially discovered by the plaintiff. The defendant is an insurer and I've assumed had no relevant documents for obvious reasons. So it's slightly unique uh, in the sense that both parties had everything. And the issues of which I've just spoken don't generally arise in those circumstances. Uh, Each party is equally able uh, to test the system after it's run and make their own judgments about it. That having been said, the idea of referring out the fine detail of how the TAR system is to be used uh, seems to me to be sensible, but again, Uh, we need to rapidly come to a point where there is large consensus about how the system is to be used and we need to ensure that that consensus does not overly complicate the process and erode the savings which the technology otherwise offers. Now, Craig, just to bring a bit of global perspective to our discussion, what are some of the international trends that we're seeing around the use of technology-assisted review? Thanks, Jacqueline. Uh Listen, it, it, it's interesting. It's probably um, Toria in particular that's probably leading the way. Um, there probably hasn't been much more development from from a global perspective apart from uh, many of the reported cases that probably most people are aware of, You know, uh, especially from a common law point of view. We talk about the Irish Bank case and Pyro Investments. But uh, my sense of it, especially from a, from a technology perspective, especially comes in um, you know, the McConnell-Dow case. Um, and I know we're probably going out nationally, but um, from a Victorian perspective, the introduction of a new practice note around it. And um, clearly the Supreme Court's signalled its intentions around it because I know from a global point of view, we had the uh, Rio Tinto case out of US, which specifically stated that you know a party is the best person to decide how to do, to process their documents or discharge their obligations. Work out how to discharge their obligations around disclosure. Um, and you know the, the global think tank around electronic discovery is a body called the Sedona Principles. It also says the same thing. But the new practice note introduced says that the court has the power to impose tar on a party, which is probably reasonably strict in comparison to what the global trends are. I think the other interesting point, especially as a practitioner, is you know the potential for the appointment of a, uh, a single operator um, to do perform the TAR for both parties. That, I think, is something that would, uh, for any practitioner, be something that you need to tread reasonably carefully with. And then the third major point is, uh, as already discussed, is, you know, the introduction of, you know, the different execution methods um, 
from court cases we've seen, we've only seen the statistical-based ones reported. So we've seen simple active learning, we've seen simple passive learning. While continuous active learning was talked about in the Rio Tinto case, it wasn't used. But you know, the introduction of those different execution protocols is probably one of the key things as well. Thank you, Craig and Andrew, for your time today. To our listeners, be sure to subscribe to the Society of Construction Law podcast to be alerted when new episodes are available. We look forward to sharing further podcasts with you. I'm Jacqueline Smith. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.